0: You're listening to South Bend Beat, produced by Alpha Dog Podcast. this week on south bend beat we have david matthews of matthews llc david is a local entrepreneur he's a south bend kid um, and he has a bunch of projects around downtown south bend and played a major role in the revival of downtown south bend and we talked about some of those projects urban De- urban development as a whole, his travel experiences, we talked some elevators, and we talked about our mutual love of boxed mac and cheese. And today's episode is brought to you by Martin's Supermarkets, and Martin's now has Rush Pickup. Uh, at the martin's deli and starbucks you can get your favorites they're now available to be as ready in as little as 15 minutes at 11 of your martin's locations to check out where your neighborhood martin's is go to martins-supermarkets.com and remember you can count on them pop in get your groceries have a good customer service experience and then get back in your car and listen to South Bend beat and this week we have david matthews enjoy Here we are with David Matthews of Matthews LLC right here in downtown South Bend. How you doing, David?
1: Doing pretty well. Glad to be here.
0: So let's, uh, let's jump into your background. Um, one thing I want to get into, you kind of touched into it in your political run, um, where a lot of people assume you grew up with money. And uh, obviously they see you're very successful now and everything being built and everything, but that really wasn't the case. Uh, can you talk to that a little bit and just kind of your childhood, maybe all the way up until like the Purdue days?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, born in, you know, South Bend, Mishawaka. Uh, parents split when I was two, moved out to Hudson Lake, which is just past the county line in Laporte. you know, past New Carlisle. Grew up there until I was like eight, moved back to South Bend, um, but had, you know, free, reduced lunch. Uh, went to Purdue with the uh, – did the Core 40 at Adams High School. And then – oh, gosh, you've got that program where they – if you graduated high school, they like paid for your college, so I had to pay like take loans out for housing and stuff. But like tuition, got grants for to cover that stuff. Um, worked since I was you know a kid doing odd jobs when I was probably in sixth grade to so eleven. I got a paper route, and then used that money to buy a computer, and then started doing web coding and you know some basic access database stuff. And then that paid for like my spending money and buy a car as I went to college. Um and then yeah, just always worked. So definitely did not grow up wealthy, so to speak.
0: So are you uh, are you a cheerleader now for the public school system, being a public school kid yourself?
1: Yeah, I uh yeah, definitely a fan of public schools. I think the statistics say that if you're a poor if you're a black kid and you go to a rich white school you do a lot better if you're a rich white kid and go to a poor black school you do pretty much just as well as you would do in a rich white school Mm -hmm. and so i have a year and a half year old she'll be two in january and we're talking about keeping her in South Bend schools madison's the closest school to walk to so we'll see if that uh that theory holds true in practice in three years (laughs) So let's talk
0: about how you got into real estate. At what age did you know that that was kind of gonna be your path?
1: I have no idea. I don't even know that it's my path now. Um, (laughs) But my mom would say that I was pretty determined when I was like, gosh, maybe seven or eight years old, I read a book like how to buy a house, no money down. I was like, I have no money down, let's buy a house. and i didn't quite understand banking rules and you know how old you had to be to sign and my parents weren't keen you know keen to you know be my co-signer so that got shelved for a while and then i moved through grad school and college pretty well got out with a masters in engineering and part of a phd moved back to south Bend and shadowed business guys so these 40 to 60 year old men maybe 50 to 60 year old men who own their own companies whose wives were sick of hearing about work and kids didn't give a damn and so I would show up and sponge information and I learned pretty quick that if I let them pay me then they would you know expect to tell me what to do and so instead I worked odd jobs and I was a waiter at Logan's Roadhouse and just you know did activities to pay the bills and then would wake up at 6 a.m. and go shadow these business guys and learn how to do what they did. And a few of them did real estate. So then that seemed interesting. I ended up, uh, I'd had helped previously some people flip houses by letting them take money out as a loan from me on my credit cards and I had good credit. And so then I flipped a couple houses myself and one of them was in McKinley Terrace over in Manchester. And we, you know, it's a pretty closed off house. And we cut a hole between the kitchen and the living room. And it's like, oh, this feels a lot better. And uh, and so then I ended up moving in there instead of flipping it. Got roommates, the roommates helped pay for the mortgage. Then I could live for practically nothing and then keep shattering these business guys and doing some traveling and and realize that real estate was very tangible where when I was in engineering school, it was like oh here make this sell in a worksheet big or small and that just wasn't that rewarding um, so yeah real estate was very superficial and I liked it so so
0: when people better. bring up South Bend's revival um, I feel like one of the first things they bring up is well David Matthews could kind of see the future he he was scooping up properties and land in downtown South Bend when it was looking like at the time like what are you doing and mm. then in pretty short order, it paid off pretty well and things started picking up. What led you to believe that that was going to be a good gamble to take?
1: So I think a lot of it's just youthful ignorance and confidence. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, of course I'm working on it. Of course it's going to work out. (laughs) Why wouldn't it? Um, Heinz. Yeah. I would not make those same gambles today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Really? So yeah, you don't think you'd, you dive in the same way that you did at that point?
1: I don't think so. It's exhausting. It's a lot of work Mm -hmm. um, and it's risky and the real estate doesn't make people rich. It builds wealth and so you're still broke for a lot of time, Mm -hmm. though you have like a high net worth on your balance sheet. You don't get to enjoy that because you have to borrow so much money to do the real estate deals that it takes you years to pay it back before you can actually enjoy some of the fruits of that labor. Um, so, yeah, so what happened is like, oh, I don't like the suburbs. I would live at my mom's house and, you know, free rent and then catch the train and go to Chicago where my high school friends were living after college and sleep on their couch and go out, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, come back Sunday, Monday, go back to work and then, you know, learn the real estate trade, um, and that worked really well, but I didn't like suburbs, so I didn't want to do a subdivision. And it's like, okay, how do we do something downtown? So I started a group young developers forum. And we had a you know, few, you know, young 20 something guys who wanted to do real estate development and actually are um, that would get together every couple of months and just talk. And then, you know, slowly matured on my thinking, did a project an info project by Corby Holmes. Uh, named Keenan Court, and then did a project next to Notre Dame named Ivy Quad. And then the partner I had for Keenan Court, we split, so he kept that, I did the Ivy Quad project. That Then the recession hit, and we sold four units in the first year, which is not enough for <laughs> 60-some unit development with millions of dollars of acquisition and upfront infrastructure costs. Yet, you know, all before we build the first building that has units we could sell. So I wasn't sure if that was going to work out. Um, when we were in the planning stage, I made a friend who was at the Notre Dame School for Architecture doing a master's, and she gave me a book, Suburban Nation, um, written by, you know, three pretty talented new urbanists. And that made a lot of sense to me. It was like, oh, this was a great way to articulate what I felt, but I didn't have the words to describe it and so that helped influence the design of ivy quad and realizing that oh this is easy math if land's expensive in notre dame if we can like triple the density double the density then i can pay more money for the land so i can outbid other people who are trying to buy it and i can we can lower the cost per unit because we can build more efficiently up to a point And so, yeah, this makes sense, so let's do that. Um, And so Ivy Quad was the first kind of dense project in that neighborhood, which we then labeled the East Campus Village. They had built townhomes east of Ivy Quad named Irish Crossings. Those were about 12 units an acre, which was the densest you could build under the existing zoning ordinance. And we did what's called a PUD and bumped that density up to like near 30 um which let me outbid somebody who was trying to also buy the land from the current owners and get that development off the ground once it was rezoned then we had like instant value got a investor on board got a loan and we you know set to const- to build and then eight months later the recession hit bought and dropped out didn't know what to do so i went to apply to the university of notre dame for a master's in classical architecture Already had an undergrad in, uh, and master's in engineering from Purdue. And so they accepted me, had to pay an artist to teach me how to sketch because, like, there's a drawing component <laughs> for the application. Like, I'm not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, got in and then learned a lot pretty fast. And even though I'm not an architect and I didn't graduate, I think I know how to hire a good architect now. And then also learned how to guide our designers where if I say, hey, I need a 10 foot by 14 foot bedroom, they'll design the house or the apartment with a 10 foot by 14 foot bedroom. And I probably don't care if it's 10 by 14 or 10 by 12 or 11 by 13, as long as it works. And so learning how to communicate what my expectations were was a big part of that program at Notre Dame, of learning to interact with the other kids who were going to architecture school who had already often did an undergrad in architecture for four years, but now we're going for anywhere from, you know, one to three more years. And, uh, and just, again, learn the vocabulary, attended conferences, attended lectures, and learn how to refine my expectations and how to communicate that to both the design team and contractors, and then came up with this idea that, hey, instead of hiring a guy who grew up framing, and then maybe did some trimming and then got into project management to be our you know, construction manager, why not hire somebody who spent seven years on design and teach them how to talk with contractors and do a budget and they'll make better design choices in the field because it's a lot easier to teach them how to do a budget and does this math work or not than to teach somebody who has very little design skill what's important and what's not. Um, and so we've since that point we've had a as a company as a team as a group we've had a focus on design and with my engineering background and understanding of what things should cost so like the second project we built in downtown south bend is on niles avenue so two blocks west of here and they have these really charming limestone columns real limestone headers limestone sills when we first designed that building, I think the the limestone quote came in at like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is for ten units that's twenty five grand a unit. Mm-hmm. When we were going to start selling them at like a you know <laughs> two hundred thousand bucks, and that's not labor, that's just the material for the limestone, not the bricks, not most of the wall. Right. So like that was just that was a non starter, and so we looked at what we could do, and you know a lot of people. Currently we'll put up like a steel lint tool if they want that limestone look and then a piece of concrete above it that looks like limestone is called faux stone. And that was in the budget, but it was like kind of driving me bonkers of like, why is limestone so expensive? Like Indiana limestone, we're in Indiana, like what's up with this? And so uh, I had our designer at the time I was like, "Hey, we need to go figure out why limestone's so expensive. Why don't we go to the manufacturer or the quarry and and talk to them instead of going through the local, you know, distributor?" And so, it was like pulling teeth to get her to like book a hotel room and make these appointments and figure out who to talk to. And so it was like I finally got online, went to the Indiana Limestone website for the, you know, association and then contacted fabricators and quarries and, you know, we went down to Bedford and New Littig, Indiana, and saw how they got the rocks out of the ground and made them into slabs and hit them really hard so they broke into smaller pieces and then sawed them and he's you know walking us over to this spot where they're making headers like we were going to order and they have these guys hand polishing them grinding down all the rough edges making them look really nice and I'm like this is a lot of labor. <laughs> <laughs> and is and and you know as we're talking it's like yeah so like you design it and then they take this and they hand cut it to the exact, you know, quarter inch or eighth of an inch that you specify and that's what we get. And I'm I'm looking around I'm like what is that? And you know there's just a stack of slabs and you know clearly it's what was used before they trimmed them down mm-hmm. to make what, you know, somebody else's architect design is like oh, well, those are the blocks we start with. That's all machine made. We call that saw on six sides because there's a saw that hits six sides of the, you know, the cube or, you know, the, you know, slab. I was like, hey, Velvet, can we use that size for a header (laughs) and a sill? And she's like, yeah, we just have to like make our mortar joints a bit bigger. I was like, that's what we want. And he's like, well, you'll have saw blades showing on your headers. I was like, this header is gonna be 30 feet in the air. (laughs) <laughs> that blade's four feet tall, nobody's going to see that line. <laughs> like, give us the cheap stuff that like gets it in the project. And they sold it to us by the ton, not by the piece. And so the limestone headers and sills on the townhomes on Isles Avenue, it was cheaper by the end of it to put a limestone header up than to buy a steel lintel and pay a guy to paint it. And so by value engineering it and having the designer have to, you know, take them to the manufacturer you know, have some engineering background, we got to the bottom of like, okay, how do we actually make this work? And found out that for our expectations, there's a cheaper way. And now the owners of those townhomes don't have to worry that in 30 years, you have to replace a header because it's rusted out. Because it's, you know, all stone, it's going to last, it's durable, the design is timeless. And so... You know those columns i mean heck you know yoda rome they have columns for Mm -hmm. thousands of years those columns will probably be there longer than the buildings are like it's a very durable structure
0: so one thing i just kind of want to nerd out and hear you talk about when people that don't know what they're talking about like idiots like myself and we see like an empty lot and we're like yeah someone build a cool building there we don't usually understand like the strategy of whether it's urban development or like neighborhood planning. Like there actually needs to be a plan on what you put in this empty lot. Eh, Not really. So you can just, if it looks cool, it can go up. There's not really any like science to it that.
1: I mean, people create science and create theories on what works and what doesn't. And I've studied those theories. And there's the way we build buildings, the way we lay out streets and sidewalks Mm -hmm does influence how people live. Okay. And so if you're trying to do a good job, yeah, these things matter. But a lot of times if you just see an empty lot, you're not gonna change the street, you're not changing the sidewalk, all that stuff's still there. And so there's good looking buildings, there's ugly buildings, there's durable buildings, and there's buildings that like, take the double tree in downtown South Bend, if they don't power wash that thing every year or two, you have these giant, streaks that fall down it because birds put little twigs up top and and they leave brown lines down the side of the building and it looks you know like a dirty cruise ship and so you can design a building that has you know that takes water shedding into account that has drip edges and that lets that water fall to the ground instead of running down the face of the building and then you don't have these vertical you know dirt paths um and so that becomes a more durable, lower maintenance building. And we favor more traditional architecture, kind of like Great Lakes Masonry, Mm -hmm. which we think is timeless for this area. So we're not winning any awards for like, hey, this is a brand new, awesome, modern design. But we think by sticking with this more traditional, human scale development, that when we build a building, it will help Build value in the neighborhood, and so when we were started doing development in South Bend downtown, we did the townhomes by the river on Colfax. Those were the first market-rate housing in the neighborhood since the Point Apartments, which went up in like the late 70s, so 30 years um, since anyone had built something, you know, market-rate. So that was you know scary and tough. And then we did the second project, the Niles Avenue townhomes. And then we were getting ready to do the big project on where Transpo was selling their land and we offered six times more and the city sold it to the lowest bidder instead of the highest bidder. And I freaked out. So then I took a vacation and came back and purchased every building and vacant lot in the <laughs> East Bank that was less than a couple hundred grand an acre so that I would never lose that opportunity again. I love that. And so, that was two projects in or three projects in from the neighborhood. And so now we feel, well, we feel secure. I feel secure because I have, you know, 10 acres in the neighborhood that I can build, you know, 100, 150 units an acre on. So that's 1500 units. That's 3000 people. That's enough to create a nice, vibrant neighborhood center that can serve as a good reputation for South Bend as a city. And I think part of the initial appeal to building that first set of townhomes in the city was that we're in the middle of a recession. Before that, we had a nice boom. But during the boom, South Bend didn't really, didn't boom. Downtown didn't boom. And I thought like, okay, why is this? And the best I could come up with is that if you're trying to recruit companies to the area, you have to recruit talent. They have to recruit talent. And they don't want to live in a spot that doesn't have access to certain amenities. Mm-hmm. And they not everyone wants to live in a city center, but almost everybody wants to have access to a vibrant urban core. So you want a spot like, hey, if you're in your 20s and you're single, you need to couple up sometime, like, where do you go? Mm-hmm. Where is the nightlife? Oh, you, you want to do banking. Oh, you want to have a food district or you want to do shopping. Like, where can people go and see other people and interact? And that if that neighborhood is located in the middle of a town or city, that neighborhood then is the reputation for that community. And so when you think of Chicago, Chicago's this yeah, huge what
0: cities do it well.
1: Right. So Chicago's this huge economic powerhouse that has a good vibrant downtown that was really redone in like what, the late nineties, two thousands, um, and then has a bunch of neighborhoods with good urban centers in all these different neighborhoods or wards as they call it and but the economic power extends you know to Naperville to Lombard to Aurora Batavia like an hour outside the city but when people think of Chicago they don't think of those suburbs they think of like Millennium Park you know exactly and then maybe they think of like the different neighborhoods near inside the loop or close to the loop and uh and that's the reputation. And so South Bend didn't really have that going for it. The downtown of South Bend emptied out. Uh, zoning laws made it even empty out faster. Good intention but bad development emptied out the buildings. And so South Bend was kind of like this undeveloped land with a bunch of vacant lots. Oh, it's cheap to pave them, so we have parking lots, but. We have so much parking lots because we don't have parking garages and we don't have people who live in walking distance to where they work, so we have to accommodate a lot of vehicles. Um, And so then, yeah, how do you fix this problem? Well, people don't care about where they work. They care about where they live. Mm -hmm. And so if you took a neighborhood and you tried to incentivize business, which South Bend did in the 70s, and you you give them free land, free rent, no taxes, and no customers, their companies are still gonna go broke keeping the lights on, paying the secretary, like it doesn't work. If you give a company high rent, high taxes, and millions of customers, well that's San Francisco, that's New York, that's Chicago, these are cities, and that works, it's tough, but it's lively. And so we had to get people living downtown, and so, you know, in my young 20s or middle 20s, I guess, I was like, what is the cheapest, nicest house I can come up with? And that was a semi-attached two-story townhouse. So you build a single family home, you have to build four walls. You have to do a roof and a foundation. If you do a duplex, well, you've saved one wall. If you do a row of townhomes, now you've saved a long wall on every unit and possibly, you know, so you drive down your costs. If you go to two stories, you save, you can shrink the footprint, so you save foundation, you save roof costs. Now you get a more efficient, cheaper build. Three stories, you have to increase the structure a bit, so it's kind of an even trade. Um, and so, a two-story attached row house is the most cost-effective thing to build, and so that's what we advertise to do with the first townhomes in South Bend, going for one hundred eighty thousand bucks thank goodness everyone added third floors and basements Mm -hmm. because it would have looked very squat with only a two-story townhome but it got people in the door and in the middle of the recession what oh nine we sold all you know six unit five units plus mine six units um in downtown south bend in 18 months and that was tough but it it got it going and then it reinforced that hey we should keep focusing on residential and promoting this neighborhood, which then, as we got people living downtown, they would volunteer, we'd have music festivals, we'd have concert series, newspapers, things that help give the neighborhood an identity and help people feel like they belong to something. And we've been building that for about a decade in the East Bank and downtown South Bend, and we have momentum. And now other developers are building, and other folks are moving in and buying and fixing up houses, or building new subdivisions, and building condos, and we're glad to kind of be there at the beginning of this uptick
0: so I want to talk about a few of your projects specifically yeah um, you can dive into kind of the ones that you want to highlight I want to start with the Commerce Center and mm-hmm. um, you know big massive building Yeah. You know, driving down the Street everyone sees it what are your long-term pl- either short-term plans and long-term plans for what's going to be happening at the Commerce Center
1: right so it's a building I bought in 15 January so just after we didn't get the transpo thing it was like oh here's a building with a few acres of land let's buy it it's across the street from my house don't know much about a big office building um asked uh grad toothacre for some advice he gave me some you know good things to think about and figured out how to get it closed and purchased it and then it was like oh boy Mm -hmm. (laughs) right tenants were moving out one of the big tenants moved out right away like it was a lot of stress and so we had to, like first things like you know pave the holy parking lot fix patch of roof leaks because we couldn't afford to put a new roof on fix and repair and replace hvc units which there are like 50 of and you know each one's like anywhere from three to twenty some thousand bucks and so it's like every month doing this maintenance get a few new tenants in great Now we have new tenants, so we have more income. Oh, we can get it appraised and the value's up, so I can refinance. Okay, refinance, get some cash back in the pocket, keep fixing it, great, value's up again, let's refinance, (laughs) get some cash out, fix it back up. And so we did that a few times to the point now where we have a nice stable building, we've replaced 60% of the roof, we've replaced probably 70 or 80% of the HVC units, We've put a new parking lot, which we've now torn up. We put a giant hole in the parking lot and are building a (laughs) 10-story building. We've ripped up all the landscaping on the east side of the building to put in a six or 7,000 square foot plaza. So we're gonna have a couple hundred people sitting outside with a couple of fire pits. And because we raised it up you know, four feet, you can sit down and see the water, which is kind of cool. We started repurposing the first floor, shifting it away from office into more of a retail restaurant location. So we have, the Merriman's Playhouse Jazz Club is moving in, probably opening up later this year. They're doing their build out now. We have a pharmacy moving in in the spring. We have a farmers market currently. We have a restaurant incubator. We have with this new plaza space for three separate permanent restaurants and a couple spots for some bars in the build- building. We have co-working space, and uh, and the first floor is beginning to feel interesting.
0: And it's something you typically see in bigger cities, like with the kind of I guess you know, hip food markets that are getting big and bigger cities, that's gonna be right here in South Bend.
1: Right, yeah. yeah, and so it's like trying to find a way to lower the barrier to entry to start a restaurant where we've had folks come to us and say, hey, I wanna start a restaurant, great. How big, I don't know, 50, 60 seats, great. What's your budget? Okay, Um. have you ever run a, business, a restaurant <laughs> before? Yep. Okay, have you ever done payroll taxes? No. Have you ever had workers' comp insurance? No. Have you ever done a construction loan? No. Have you had a business loan? No. Have you printed your own menus? Yes. Have you designed your own menus? Maybe. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so you're not ready for you know three hundred thousand dollar build out of a couple thousand square foot, fifty you know sixty seat restaurant, but you can cook. How can we help you get that business experience? And start creating a pipeline for food culture in South Bend, because my thinking is like, okay, we now have enough future development in our pipeline that we need a good food culture, because if we have a good food culture and an art scene and uh, other things that make living downtown attractive, I might be able to get an extra 50 bucks a month in rent. Well, if I can do that for a few hundred units or a few thousand units, that's a good enough incentive to discount rent to get that first floor retail restaurant scene up and going. And and so that's our theory. That's the master plan of like, okay, let's incentivize food culture. Let's make it easier and cheaper to get started. And so we did our first incubator where I tried to open a restaurant. I'm not a restaurant operator, but as a good entrepreneur, I had to try once <laughs> just to confirm that I can be an idiot sometimes. Um, and so then Baker and Rose, up shop and then PKR and now m and uh, curbside cafe just opened up a couple of days ago and these are each time these are groups that have never opened a restaurant before but got in for you know less than a few thousand bucks or for a few thousand dollars opened up ran for a year or two and then two of them are transitioning to a, a bigger space over off michigan street and down on the west bank of downtown south bend and then the third one you know just opened up a few days ago and so the goal is like hey open up get your experience save up some money get a financial history so then you could qualify for you know sba loan or attract investors and then transition you can stay up to 24 months but then you can transition over to a permanent restaurant spot and hopefully you stay in south bend hopefully you stay in downtown maybe rent from me but if not that's okay we just want to get more food culture in the area. So that way we can get more people living downtown and make it more desirable and fun.
0: Awesome. What about everyone that drives in the downtown area right now? I see the big crane. Yeah. So we have a 300 diesel salad. Talk to us about that.
1: Right, so that's a a project that got started because of regional cities. So we talked about it like, hey, we could do development here we put our application in as part of the big regional cities, you know, push and shockingly, surprisingly South Bend or St. Joe County, Elkhart County, uh, Marshall were awarded $42 million of state grants, which helped motivate a lot of local municipalities to then partner up and get these big projects, these pride of place projects going to help elevate the area of urban living and, in our region. And so we got that and we're like, okay, we should do this. And then we had to figure out how to build a building which had like a nice design, but had AP network and, or not network distribution and transmission lines going through it. We didn't have the height we needed to build without changing zoning. And we spent a couple of years doing all that work as fast as we could beating our head against the wall but like slowly getting the zoning changed redesigning it so that we didn't have to wait for AP so that we could build down and up and uh and finally got a awesome mixed-use building out of the ground we should open up 144 apartments in the spring so probably around april may of 21 We'll have a first floor grocery store. We have room for like a three to 5,000 square foot first floor drive through, so maybe a bank, maybe a Starbucks or something. And then we have about 15,000 square feet of office space on the fourth floor, which is shared with the parking garage. So if you wanted to have office space in a downtown building that you could drive to your front door and walk in, we have that, which is kind of unique in in a not first floor urban setting. And then the apartments i think all but like a dozen of them have outdoor balconies and most of the balconies are like four or five feet by like 10 feet nine eight feet, something like big um gas grill so you can barbecue and cook outside nice windows and awesome views and uh, we're now leasing but that was that was the challenge to get rezoned and pull all the pieces together and then so get financing and
0: yeah construction was going on when COVID hit
1: which has been great.
0: Yeah, so how, how did COVID impact that? So COVID's
1: helped construction tremendously. Um, it was really tough getting quotes during COVID. Everyone's been busy. We've had a nice construction boom. El- Elkhart's going really well, which eats up and absorbs a lot of construction labors. If they can work and you know, get paid better in the factories. And then COVID hits and Elkhart didn't slow down, but n- new construction projects did, as people were like, okay, what's gonna happen? But we can't stop. And so then contractors started getting nervous, like, okay, what's gonna happen in December or November? And we started getting a lot more response to bidding out the interior fit and finish of that building, which is probably about, you know, seven, eight million bucks of the 45 million. Um, but it also, but it helped schedule wise and it helped a little bit on cost. And so, yeah, we were, we were pretty pleased with COVID. Now, interesting with COVID, we've seen a complete Disappearance of all people looking for big office space. Right. So no one's looking for three yeah. to twenty thousand square foot office space, and if they are, they haven't called us. But we got space. But what we've seen is a huge uptick in people looking to open up bars and restaurants. And so I think it might be related with the uh, the COVID and um, keep the economy going, six hundred dollar a month boost to mm-hmm. s- unemployment, where it gave a nice breather to people working the you know food industry food service industry and so they started reaching out and saying okay what does it take to open a restaurant what is it you know what's up with this restaurant incubator do you have a bar incubator and so now we're experimenting and talking to people about opening a bar incubator in addition to expanding the restaurant incubator and just getting more variety of food and drink choices in the east bank so i mean if we talked about
0: all your projects we could be here for you know, a few more hours. Are there a couple more that you want to touch on? Um, One that I've been enjoying personally, uh, being here on East Jefferson is East Bank Inc has been coming around.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we like, as people move into the neighborhood into the East Bank, how do we help reinforce this sense of identity, and help people feel connected and know what's going on, especially with COVID, because I feel like with COVID, you know, there's fewer people walking around, people are staying at home, how do we share information. And so we talked about like, you know, some friends like, oh, why don't we start a newspaper? But newspapers are expensive and everyone loses money. You know, it's tough. And I was like doing the math of like, okay, what does it actually cost? And thanks to running for city council a couple of years ago, we learned how to do like mass mailings and all about like sending. You have that down to a science. Right, right. we like, (laughs) we figured it out. Like we got the math down. Um, And so it's like, oh, well, what if we apply this to the newspaper and what does it take? And so we're pretty transparent with it. We have a small circulation of about 1,300 doors. So that's 1,300 doors to apartments, houses, and businesses. We drop it off with the post office every Wednesday. They deliver it on Thursday. And it costs us like 250 bucks a week. And then print costs, instead of paying a printer, we got a used printer off eBay. That's really cheap per page. And so it costs us a couple of pennies a page to print. So we spend like 30 bucks um, to 40 bucks a week on print costs and a couple hundred bucks on mailing. So for less than 300 bucks a week, which is what, 15 grand a year, we can have a weekly newspaper. And so it's all volunteer run. our goal is that as we get more people interested in volunteering to write articles, we can expand from just one page front and back to multiple pages. Then we can actually have some space for ads. And, and I feel like we should be able to raise 15 grand a year in order to pay for the print cost to keep this paper going. Um, so we're like two months in, we didn't publish the last two weeks cause I have a kid. There's this thing called kid germs that I didn't know about. <laughs> so she got sick. And then she was fine, but we were exhausted because she threw up three nights in a row. And so we had to change the linen like every two hours, like, and then she was fine. And then she, then my wife, I, our nanny, our nanny's husband, all the adults that had association with our kid got sick. So we got, <laughs> so then we're quarantined because you know, COVID and we got COVID tested and it's not COVID, but that took a few days. And so, yeah, so you were out for, you know, a little bit over a week and now we're back and we can start publishing again, but you know the woes of a small volunteer newspaper
0: can we talk about the evolution of your topping off ceremonies I was reading an old I think like Notre Dame magazine article where it said you kind of just started with maybe like family or friends showing up and then people enjoyed you know coming to them and hanging out and then also give us the story on the Christmas tree
1: right so we used to have like groundbreaking ceremonies when we put a shovel in the ground we start construction and if we did this not In the previous projects, like, it's just like, hey, these are contractors who were paying to build stuff. They're showing up to, like, you know, let us take a photo. Great. But, like, nobody cares. And then we did one in downtown South Bend when we built the first townhomes. And, like, 70 people showed up because, like, it was midday. People were working downtown and they were interested. Like, wait, there's new housing going up in South Bend. And so they showed up because they were interested and they cared. Um, And so then we would do ribbon-cutting ceremonies when – the project's done so then the public could come in and see like oh what got built before people move in and you know you can't you know go snooping through people's closets um and so for but we'd never built a mid-rise and so with like tall buildings there's this tradition that i guess is like scandinavian or something where when they finally put the last beam in place they put a christmas tree up there and you know have a little celebration you know you know, celebrate your successes. And that's a pretty big milestone in the construction of the project. As for us, it's probably a third of the way done. And then we have. Is it a
0: sigh of relief point though for you when that last beam goes up, or still pretty much you're still in the middle of a sprint?
1: No, it's just like okay, I guess we're not working today, (laughs) or like for half a day, and we're giving tours and inviting the public up, and it's great, and like everyone's happy, but like we got stuff to do, (laughs) like and again, we're only like a third of the cost through, maybe a little bit more, but like there's still you know we still need walls and HVC and electrical and fire you know systems and plumbing cabinets and doors and security systems and cameras and you know balconies and exterior walls and yeah so (laughs) there's you know plenty but it's like good to stop and pause and celebrate you know the success and and it's fun to just like walk up the building and let you know people you know take a tour up and say okay i'm on the eighth and ninth floor of a new 10-story building and here's how the concrete goes together because this is all going to be buried you know the next time you walk through so
0: so what's a typical day for you look like
1: I uh, wake up in the morning and you know, see the kid and take some vitamins and read for like an hour or two of news or whatever I'm studying. And then think about like what's most important for me to do today. And then I try to get those things done. And then I stand by in case there's like anything that comes up in our organization. I'm not like your, I'm not your consistent operator. I'm, I can do the math, and so I can make sure we can pay the bills, and I write, sign the checks, and I do sales. So if somebody calls and says, hey, I'm looking to move in, or rent office space, or open a restaurant, or find an apartment, if you call the number on the billboard, or the signs outside the buildings, it goes to my cell phone, so then we talk. And then I, if I have extra time, I walk around and try to think of like, okay, what should we do next? And so my skill is thinking like, okay, three to 10 years out, what's gonna happen? And so I come up with that vision and some of a plan, and then it transitions to Velvet, who's head of design and construction, and then she has to make sure it's pretty, make sure it's to code, and that it can get built on budget, and what is that budget? And then we have a property manager who then is in charge of the day-to-day operations of leasing and keeping our tenants happy, and making sure hvc filters get changed and bathrooms get cleaned and and so that's the organization that's what we do
0: so so the question before we get to some of the more fun questions uh, the last serious question i guess um and this question is brought to you by martin's count on us uh this is going to be a piece of advice from david that you can count on but if you want to count on good customer service good food good groceries pop in the side door deli you can count on martin's supermarkets go to martin's supermarkets height martins-supermarkets.com to see your neighborhood martins and david for your last serious question um what's some advice if if, whether it's a student a young adult or even an older adult if they want to get into real estate really at any level are there a couple pieces of advice you're like make sure you start with these two pieces of advice before you jump in
1: so if you're in like the real estate development business which is what i'm in not like Real estate agency, where you're trying to facilitate sales. Right. Um, for development, like our main thing is we manage debt. So, like you have to understand financing and that math, and that's like the the thing that you need to have a good handle on. And then everything else kind of gets hired out. So you can hire designers, engineers, architects leasing agents, salespeople, maintenance, but the acquisition process, the vision for what to happen next, and managing how to pay for all of that, that's the, that's the secret sauce that a lot of people get wrong and can be very expensive if you don't know how to do it. So figure out how to get that experience. I got it by shattering business people and seeing how they handled loans and debt and talking with bankers like i don't have a business degree I have a couple of engineering degrees and so that was very important and useful in my growth as a professional and yeah you got to kind of get that knowledge and then the more knowledge you have the better decisions you make for who to hire who to work with um and you know you can make decisions quicker that are the right decisions as opposed to making a slow or fast decision that's not the right decision.
0: All right, let's get to some answer the internet questions and we're gonna wrap up with some quick travel talk. I wanna get some of your favorite cities. Um, Question I ask everybody when I remember, have you ever been stuck on an elevator? Probably. But it, it wouldn't have been scarring enough for you to remember? No. See, I'm not an elevator guy like even when we go to the commerce center and then you really freaked me out with the commerce center elevator so you know but uh um yeah i i know they said with like the city building downtown that one always gets stuck but apparently you would be fine you're not claustrophobic at all
1: i'm not claustrophobic i mean we build private elevators that are a third the size of commercial elevators that go inside fancy kind of townhomes
0: elevators are very reliable like it's completely nonsensical well, for me well, to be worried. Well, I
1: think reliability and safety are different questions. Like, I think no one's died that I know of in right. the elevators. I'm just worried about getting stuck. But, like, you could get stuck. <laughs> like, uh, at least you're keeping it real. I guess. Right? But, like, you're not going to get hurt as long as you don't, like, self-harm. Um, <laughs> like, if you're in the elevator, you're fine. People, if it's the getting in and out of the elevator that's, like, the dangerous bit. Right. And so watch out for those doors. Um, but... No, I think I mean elevators are expensive. There's the people who operate them, know what they're doing, who fix Do them. They have to be tested often? All the time. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I think I think the commercial elevators get tested every quarter with a big test every year and a really big test every 5 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it makes no, it's, me feel a it's So it's yeah. like thousands of dollars in testing for us per elevator per year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, and then there, and so that's like us paying a contractor, and then the they have to send paperwork out to the state, and then the state comes out, Department of Homeland Security, and then they inspect and make sure that nothing's awry, as well. So it's not just like take our word for it, take our contractor's word for it. There's that third party state inspector that makes rounds, visiting all the uh, commercial elevators in the state. It does make me feel better. Yeah.
0: I saw in one of your videos that your favorite food is pizza. Yeah. Do you have a favorite pizza place around here?
1: Uh yeah, I mean it kinda depends on the mood, but probably the most often go to place is Barnaby's cheese pizza and then pepperoni is either Corby's or Rocco's.
0: So you differ based on whether you want cheese or pepperoni. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Serious pizza guy. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then uh and then if a friend's making it or if I'm like indulging and not eating locally, I really like Detroit style pizza. So that's
0: what's Detroit style pizza?
1: Litter Caesars deep dish. Okay. Okay. With pepperoni. All well right. done. And, uh, and then <laughs> also occasionally, you know, a Domino's pan pizza. Okay. Pepperoni.
0: Do you think you could beat Tom Cruise in a fight?
1: Oh, I mean, depends if he's training or not. Right. But probably not.
0: I don't know. I think he might be able to get him.
1: I mean, I know he's short and he's <laughs> old, but <laughs> <laughs> he does have some training, on but the he, side but he him. does like, yeah. So he's so, filming
0: his next movie in outer space.
1: I know that's that's the flight alone the, is like a hundred million dollars. That's the coolest thing yeah. ever.
0: <laughs> um, would you rather have a chef, masseuse, or chauffeur for the rest of your life on the house?
1: I'm gonna go with masseuse because, like, I'm a stress relief, huh? Picky eater. Well, I'm a picky eater who like isn't that adventurous with food. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have a car that drives itself, so. Yeah, masseuse. No
0: free plugs, but you have a Tesla. I do. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's a really fun tour.
0: Tesla, you can send a car if you want. I'll I'll give you free plugs. (laughs) Um, So, if men, if all men were carrying purses and it was kind of an everyday thing, what are a few items that you would have in yours?
1: I mean, I guess what I have in my pockets: a cell phone and credit cards. And if I have to, if I drive, keys. But usually, I don't even drive. So.
0: Are. Right now in the age of COVID, do you carry around hand sanitizer or you just kind of depend on wherever you're gonna be i just that?
1: try not to touch my face yeah i have a mask because you know it's the law
0: i try not to but i still do it um would you rather know how you're going to die or when you're going to die neither <laughs> what if you if you had to pick? i mean i guess how you would
1: i guess when
0: yeah, when you would know your expiration That'd date, be terrible. It's
1: like, did you ever watch uh, How I Met Your Mother? No. Oh, yeah. So, like, but like, if you knew how you're going to die, but not when, like, well, that'd be a great thing to build paranoia of. Like, yeah, depending on like how yeah, open ended it is. You could live to be 120, but for like 80 years, you're <laughs> yeah. paranoid about like this, you know, crack in the yeah, sidewalk. That's a good point. Like, I'd much rather be like, oh, here's the end date. Okay, fine. So I can do whatever I want until then? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> do you have any unusual essence, habits? Because like then you'd be immortal.
0: Yeah, I get – If, like you, knew a you, if of you, you knew you weren't going to no die until
1: yeah. like 21, 25, like, well – You could go in
0: all the elevators you, you want. You might as well go scuba <laughs>
1: diving and, you know, jumping out of airplanes and riding elevators and, yeah. yeah
0: riding elevators. Do you have any unusual habits or superstitions?
1: No, everything I do is normal. Just ask my wife or don't ask my <laughs> wife. Um, I, uh, I guess, like, I talk funny. I'm a picky eater. I like cheese pizza. I like macaroni and cheese from a box. Kraft um, or Velveeta? I used to be Kraft. I dislike Velveeta. But now I'm like Annie's Organic because, like, you know. Okay. Yeah. I've, I wish I've I grown could, up. I
0: wish I could get on the Annie's train, but I'm still Kraft. Guy.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't make it with, a according of the box, I <laughs> I, you know, do the packet, but before I put the packet in, I put in, like, I don't use milk. I just use, like, five tablespoons, six tablespoons of butter.
0: That sounds pretty good. And then the cheese you ever tried half and half?
1: No, but, like, half and half is just, like, the stuff that's left over from (laughs) butter. So, like, why not just use all butter?
0: (laughs) Uh, How long does it take you to decide what to wear for each day?
1: I I mean, seconds, I just take whatever right, well, shirts on top, yeah. and yeah, and then if I, you know, my shirts that are dressy, I have hanging up, so then I decide if I'm wearing a sweater or not, and then I pick one, and then the polo shirts that's on top of the stack, based on how get, they got folded, you know, last week. So you mentioned you're a picky
0: eater. Mm-hmm. Have you eaten anything like strange or off the wall? You've traveled a lot, which we're gonna get yeah, to. Yeah, so
1: like, I, I've eaten strange stuff, but I don't like it. So you haven't liked anything strange? But, no.
0: um Rocky Mountain oysters. Have you tried those?
1: I I mean I've had an oyster. I don't know These the Rocky are, Mountain uh, part like of bull it. Testicles. No.
0: Would you try it? You wouldn't even try it. I
1: don't know that I'd try it now. Well, they don't come
0: out like as a
1: like circle. I mean I've eaten like you know I've tasted like donkey and like donkey. Yeah, like oh, in China. Bad. It was just, you know, kind of gamey. I've had like (laughs) seafood where they like killed the fish in front of you in Japan, and then you ate it. And it's like, my eyes just water. Like I'm allergic, but I'm not allergic. (laughs) I just, there's just nothing in me that wants to like eat this or taste this again. So I'm very happy with like my very plain, simple palate. Hamburger plain, ketchup only.
0: Are you a talker in the back of Ubers when you're riding?
1: I often sit in the front seat. I mean, I haven't been in an Uber since COVID, but yeah you know get in the front seat and You'll chat Start a conversation i will yeah but i'm an introvert so i don't want to have like a lot of conversations
0: you just want medium conversation yeah. yeah right all right and look. like i do
1: sales <laughs> so like you know and then i don't want to talk to anyone for a few hours and i'll watch star trek and like you know veg <laughs> let's,
0: out. let's finish up talking some travel you are very well traveled actually um those of you that are listening if you're in the commerce center many of those photos you took right everyone yeah, every every photo that's up there you kind of see like the canvas hanging on the wall um do you have a couple favorite cities that you've been to
1: yeah um Dublin's been great Paris has been great once or twice I went when they didn't allow bicycles so when they didn't allow vehicles so it's only bicycles and pedestrians mm-hmm. and so like the air quality was better it's quieter and you could like you know ride around the uh, the try you know the f- landmarks um what else has been awesome? Uh, Rome, Venice, Vienna, Salzburg, it's okay. Uh,
0: you ever draw inspiration when you travel for uh-huh. projects back here?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's like, I go, I take pictures, I organize my photos, so it's like, okay, here's ideas to like think of like, when I'm trying to solve a problem, I can like go back and like, okay, thanks to the iPhone now they're like geotagged and, by location so I can like do searches for things. Um, But no, that's a big part of it. It's like, okay, what works? And it's interesting, like in big vibrant cities, like you don't need fancy architecture, you just need people. Mm -hmm. And people are more interesting than pretty buildings, but if you don't have people, then pretty buildings help.
0: Have you ever been to a city and after a couple days or even a day and you're like, I'm probably never coming back here again?
1: Probably, and then I like, blanks out of my mind and never think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, David, thanks for your time today. Um a quick reminder if you can uh rate, subscribe, South Bend Beat, you can find us at South Bend Beat Everywhere, Southbendbeat.com. And before you get out of here, anything you want to plug, plug away.
1: Um I guess if you're interested in stuff downtown, matthewsllc.com L C dot com, M A T T H E W S L L C dot C O M.
0: Awesome. Thanks for your time and I uh, really appreciate
1: <laughs> it. But day I play and rope with that on the thing that I got and all I care about is my city, man. I can't say it enough. I didn't hurt things about y'all that they can't say about us. I just hold it down for my side. I just hold it down for my set. I give everybody a piece of this and I make do. This
0: has been a production of the Alpha Dog Podcast Network. Find more shows at alphadogagency.com/podcast.